the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Derek Bukema, pastor of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, and I'm so glad that you've joined us today for Grounded and Growing in Christ here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Each weekday at this time, we open God's Word, exploring how it changes us and brings us closer to Him. Right now, we are in a message series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. All through this Gospel, John is driving us toward belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope and pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To hear all of the messages in this series, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And if you'd like to help provide financial support for this radio ministry, you can make a gift of any size at that same website, groundedandgrowingradio.com. If you're not already a part of a local church family, then I would like to invite you to visit us at Orland Park CRC this Sunday as we gather to worship the Lord and study His Word together. To find our service times and location information, just visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, let's open God's Word to see what He has for us today. Let's turn together to John chapter 17. We're going to look there together. John chapter 17, this is a prayer from Jesus to the Father. And and so one of the things that struck me as I was preparing for all of this is that this is God the Son praying to God the Father. This This is God offering a prayer to God and the mystery of the Trinity allows for this to take place. And the reverence and the intimacy that Jesus makes use of in this prayer is astounding. Referring to his Father as the Holy Father or the Righteous Father, but also coming to him with this intimate knowledge. It's a reminder of how near we can draw to him and how we are invited actually to come and know him. So John chapter 17, starting at verse 1, reading through the end of the chapter. Let's remember that this is God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So when I was a student in college, the person that I most respected among my peers was my roommate. The man was extraordinarily gifted. Steve Palmer is his name. Captain of the cross-country team, the smartest of my roommates, a pre-med and philosophy double major. He had deep insight, deep intellect, deep kindness, deep care. Right now, in the course of his life, he is finishing a PhD in theology. He's in medical school. He's pastoring full-time and is the father of five children. I'm not sure how any person does one of those things, much less all of them at the same time. A couple of years ago, he founded a school in the city where he lives. It's a suburb of Pittsburgh called Swickley, Pennsylvania. It's now the most prestigious and elite school in the city with a waiting list, as I understand it, that's actually longer than the enrollment that they have at the school. They can't take any more. They're full up and have more than that on a waiting list. Steve uh, is a spiritual advisor to famous people that I can tell you about after the service, but I feel like I shouldn't mention it during the course of the sermon, and, uh, and continues to be so thoughtful, so kind. He's always seemed to understand more than I could, express things more deeply than I have the ability and beautifully. And he's thought more deeply and widely than I have the capacity for. And so throughout college, I paid attention to what he was doing, in part because I wanted to be like him. And for one period of time, over the course of about one semester, he was reading one particular book. He was fixated on it. It was a book written in the early 90s by J.I. Packer with a simple title, Knowing God. As we were hanging out one evening, he was talking about why it was that he was fixating so much on this particular book. And this is how I recall the conversation. This is what Steve said to me. He said, how amazing is it that we, simple creatures that we are, have the opportunity to know God? That there is even the chance that God, who's all-knowing and all-present and always existing, would allow himself to be knowable by us who are so temporary and so fleeting and so prone to error and sin. I'm overwhelmed, he went on, by this powerful truth. So I'm devoting myself to trying to understand what it might mean to know God. Those were powerful words from a 19 or 20 year old young man 
that were very formative for me. And it's just a reminder to all of you who might be in high school or college that it's not too early to begin working for yourself to know God. Steve, at 19 or 20 years old, he was making this the mission of this particular time in his life. And it, it transformed me as somebody who was in my late teens or early 20s at that particular time. And it's an insight you know, that it's glorious to know God. It's an insight that seems to come either explicitly or implicitly from John chapter 17, the section of scripture that we just read. Within John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus uses this word know or to make known. He uses it nine times explicitly. But again, it's implicit in a lot of other places where he talks about making manifest what he, what he experienced and giving it to the people. That's talking about making things known. This, this focus on knowing God is shot through John chapter 17. Knowing God is of ultimate importance. John chapter 17 verse 3 is the famous favorite verse of a theologian that you might know, a person that you might know from Christian history. There was a theologian named John Calvin, and his life verse was John chapter 17, verse 3. Now, we're a Reformed church, and that means that, that John Calvin is one of the theologians that we look to as a real hero of the faith. And his life verse, his favorite verse, was John chapter 17, verse 3. Take a look at that with me. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You've been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukemai. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook answering seven hard questions that Christians ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. And now, more from Pastor Derek in our series called We Believe, focusing on the Gospel of John. We pray that as a result of this series, you will see new faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be clear. He never wrote, this is my life verse, or this is my favorite verse. They didn't use that sort of language at this particular time when Calvin was writing. And so if you read the Institutes after this and come back tonight, and you're like, you know, he never wrote that that was his favorite verse. Or if you read his commentary on John, you're like, he never put that as his favorite verse. I will agree with you. He did, however, quote it more than any other verse in the Bible. This was the verse he quoted more than any other. And I'm glad he did. Because it is a powerful verse. A powerful verse. So let's sit here with this verse for just a moment before we get to the rest of the passage. Because in it, Jesus, in his prayer to the Father, makes crystal clear the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life and mine is to know God. The purpose of your life and mine is to know God. God. And we need to recognize that together this morning. Eternal life is found in this, knowing the Father and knowing the Son. If you've experienced the church for any length of time, you've probably heard a pastor say this, I don't want for us to be numb to it. I don't want for us to be numb to this truth. Knowing God is eternal life. 
If we know God right now, it means that that this point where time touches eternity is this point where we already begin to know the fullness of life that we will know forever. You can't know life fully now, and you can't live forever unless you know the Father and unless you know the Son. You and I need to stake our life on it because it's the purpose of our life. And so let me plead with you. Don't become numb to this, this truth. There are so many things in this world that can be life-giving, and that's good. God has made the world, and he has shot it through with all sorts of meaning and purpose and goodness. And that means there are all sorts of things that we can derive life from. But don't let that become an ultimate thing. Let me give you an example. Yesterday morning, I, um, I got donuts for my family. Baller. And uh, then I, uh, and then we read a book together. We read the end of Little Town on the Prairie. Aubrey was really into it because Laura and Almanzo start to date at the end of. I, well, I'm sorry, I don't want to spoil it. Well, it's like a hundred years old, so you've had time to to read it. And then for about an hour, my son was all giggles as I threw him onto the couch again and again and again until I just about collapsed from exhaustion. And uh, it was a sweet moment. When we were turning in for the evening, Aubrey and I talked about the day, and we said, today was a good day. It was life-giving to be able to spend this time with family. And it is. Family is a great gift of God, and we should be really grateful for it. But family, as good, as glorious as it is, is not eternal life. And if you or I are making family our deepest goal or the purpose of our life, we are sacrificing something eternal for something temporary. And it could be a whole host of other things, all manner of things that that give a sense of, of life or joy to you. If that becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes a terrible thing. There is one thing and one thing alone that is eternal life, knowing the Father, knowing the Son. This is a reformed church that we're a part of. We have brothers and sisters in a tradition very similar to ours. It's called the Presbyterian tradition. And they have a wonderful document called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the first question of that catechism is the most famous. And I will read it for you. Here's the question, then I'll give you the answer. The question is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is perfectly Presbyterian in every sort of way, not least of which because it's very exalted language that's pristine and states things perfectly. The the Reformed tradition of which we are a part usually makes things a little bit more personal. So let me restate this in a Reformed sort of way. Uh, The the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one starts with, what's your only comfort in life and in death? So let me restate question answer one. It asks this. It says, what's the purpose of your life? And the answer that's given is this. The purpose of your life is to know and worship God. It's why you were made. And you will know, you'll know the fullness of the purpose for which you were made if you know and worship God. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus starts by laying it all out there for us at the very beginning of his prayer, letting us know that the purpose of our life is to know God and glorify him. But you probably noticed something else as Jesus prays here in John chapter 17, something that might have caught you off guard and made you wonder. 
as Jesus begins his prayer, he asks that God the Father might glorify God the Son so that God the Son might glorify God the Father. And you might read this and wonder, well, where is the humility? I thought Jesus was supposed to be gentle and lowly. I thought he was supposed to be the one who humbled himself like Philippians talks about. Now he's praying that God would glorify him. How does this work? And you might wonder, all right, so if we were in a prayer meeting, you know, like five of us and and one person with his task was starting and they stood up and they were like, God, I pray that you would glorify me. Uh, Amen. And then the next person went around, you'd be like, that was an interesting way to lead into that prayer in our prayer meeting, a prayer that God might glorify you. And actually it wouldn't, it wouldn't be the right sort of thing. God, God doesn't exist to glorify you. We should exist to glorify God. So why is it okay for Jesus then? Why is it that Jesus can pray? All right, father, glorify me. How does that work? Well, let me quote, uh, let me quote John Piper. Here's a quote from John Piper. This is where he just really shines, I think. He says, God is the one being for whom self-exaltation, that means like glorifying himself, lifting himself up, for whom self-exaltation is the most loving act because he's exalting for us what alone can satisfy us fully and forever. If we lift ourselves up, we're not loving because we distract people from the one person who can make them happy forever, God. But if God exalts himself, he draws attention to the one person who can make us happy forever, himself. He's not an egomaniac. He's an infinitely glorious, all-satisfying God offering us everlasting and supreme joy in himself. He goes on to sort of illustrate this. I'm going to give you a couple of the illustrations. He says, um, he, he gives some examples of some famous people. He talks about how Brad Pitt turned away from his boyhood faith. And he said, God says, you have to say that I'm the best. It seems to be all about ego for God. And Piper responds, no, Brad Pitt, if God didn't demand that you see him as best, he wouldn't care about your supreme happiness. And he also notes that C.S. Lewis, before he became a Christian, complained that God's demand to be praised sounded like a vain woman who wants compliments. And he says, no, Mr. Lewis, God is not vain in demanding your praise. This is his highest virtue and your highest joy. And so Christ prays for glory because he's God. Because if he lifts up himself, exalts himself, he is exalting the only one who can make you truly happy. The only one who can give you eternal life. Knowing the Father and knowing the Son. And then, in his prayer, he prays for the church, starting at verse 6, going through the end of John chapter 17. He starts by praying for the disciples specifically. He ends by praying for the church that will come into existence because of the spread of the gospel. So you and I are here in this part of the Bible. And he talks about four different themes. John Stott knows this. He talks about four different themes that actually weave in and out of each other and build on each other. And so he, he prays for, for truth for the church, especially in verse 8. He prays for the holiness of the church, especially verses 14 through 17. He prays for the mission of the church, especially verses 18 to 20. And he prays for the unity of the church, especially in 22 and 23. And so I'm going to walk through these briefly together now in our remaining time. And I know you're thinking, that was like a 20-minute introduction. Are you sure this is going to be brief now that you've gotten to the four points of the sermon? 
We'll find out, I guess, uh, in a little bit. So first he prays for, the, uh, for truth for the church. Let me just highlight verse 8 for us. He says this. Well, first in verse 6, he talks about manifesting the name of the people that he's given. So he's, he's demonstrating, he's talking about, he's praying for, for demonstrating the truth of, of the Father to people. And then in verse 8, he says this. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So he's talked about how he's demonstrated the truth of who God is, and they've come to believe in truth. And so what grounds the first part of this prayer for his disciples and those who would come to know Christ Jesus. So this prayer for the church is truth. Part of knowing God is knowing the truth. Jesus, you see, speaks true words. But more than that, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And all those who believe in God believe true things. The scripture gives us real historical realities, not an abstract ideology. We believe that truth is a person. Jesus, in saying that he is the way and the truth and the life, is truth. And we come to know not just, again, some sort of abstraction or some sort of ideology, but a person who is truth, who really lived at a specific time, who genuinely died, who really got up on the third day to live again forever. And as we profess the truths of the Christian faith, if we ever quote the creed as a part of a worship service or when we're welcoming members through profession of faith, sometimes we'll quote the Apostles' Creed together. We just name historical truth, historical truth, historical truth, historical truth. This is what I I believe, and I believe that there will be another historical truth that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to renew everything. This is what it means to know God, to believe the truth. And so Jesus prays for truth for the church. And then he prays for holiness, the holiness of the church. And I want to, I want to draw out this as well. He prays for the holiness of the church. He starts in verse 14, and I'm going to read 14 to 17 for us. Jesus prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So we can see here that these themes are actually building on themselves. So he started by talking about truth. He returns to truth again, and he talks about it now in the context of holiness. The first way that he gives us us holiness is talking about how he's praying not that we would be taken out of the world, but that we would live within the world and yet be kept safe from the evil one. The prayer that Jesus is offering here is that Christians, people that trust in Jesus, might be in the world, but not of the world. That we might live within the world, not separate from it, but operating in a way that's distinct. With love and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control in a world that's disordered and, and crazy and always, always at war. We're not supposed to just separate ourselves from the reality of the world in which we live. We're supposed to be in it, kept safe from the evil one, distinct in the midst of all of it. And then he goes on to make it clear, sanctify them. He's saying, make them holy. Again, by the truth, for your word is truth. And so he's praying, all right, give the, I've given truth to the church. Use that church, use that truth now to make the church holy. 
You know, there, there, are, uh, a lot of, there are a lot of different conversations about things that the church needs. And, um, you know, you can engage in those in a whole host of different ways. One of the things that we must not neglect is just this, holiness, simple holiness. One of the things that we need to be eager for in our own lives is to be made holy like God is holy. And this is a great need of the church. And it's a great need for you as a Christian. And if you're ever wondering, man, all right, what do I, all right, I, I've been a Christian, what do I need to do? Well, well growing in holiness is always an answer to that question. Growing in holiness is always an answer to that question. And that's actually part of what Jesus prays for, that we might be sanctified, made more like God grow in holiness. And and here's what's beautiful in terms of knowing God. As you grow in holiness, you will know God better. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that you become more saved if you become more holy. I'm not saying that like there are different levels of heaven. And if you get to a certain level of holiness, you'll get the VIP, like, like wristband or something like that. So you get I don't know, unlimited appetizers or something like that. Once you get to heaven, it's not, that's not the way that it works. There's not like levels of salvation. But what I am saying is this, that sin is something that will always steal your joy and sin is something that always separates us from each other and will separate us from God. And so if you want to know God, growing in holiness will enable you to know him better. And so he prays for holiness. And as you grow in holiness, you'll have more, more joy. been listening to today's message from Pastor Derek Bukema. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, listen to past programs, and to give a gift to support our work preaching the Bible on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, visit us today at groundedandgrowingradio.com. And while you're there, please sign up to download your free copy of the ebook Answering Seven Hard Questions That Christians Ask. Again, that's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This is Pastor Derek Bukema, and on behalf of Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, we want to thank you for your support and partnership in proclaiming the gospel here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. If you're looking for a local church to call home, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday. You can find all the details online at groundedandgrowingradio.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, may God bless you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com